0: Alright, Matthew chapter 16, Matthew 16. Are you shocked? We're not in Psalms this morning. <laughs> Gary, are you turning over there? Uh, I want to preach something I've been bouncing around in the back of my head for a while. Hopefully it'll make sense as we get through this. But uh, I, I Actually, honestly, next week there might be a psalm sermon for uh Uh, for Easter Sunday. I've got one I'm I'm, kind of looking at. But uh, but anyway, today Matthew chapter number 16, and pretty familiar passage here, Matthew 16, where you get a great uh, declaration of faith, a great question that's asked, and a great foundation that's laid right here in Matthew 16, beginning in verse number 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others, Jeremias, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, Now the, the past few weeks, I uh, have delivered uh, not just from the Psalms, but I, I would kind of classify them, and, and, and I really, ha- I really, I don't know that I ever appreciated this this type of sermon before. But uh, the, I feel like I've preached pastoral sermons the past few weeks, and uh, I, I've never seen that in any book on preaching that type of sermon. But I, I've learned to recognize it. And it's a lot of helpful advice, a lot of guidance from Scripture. And it really is born from a pastor's heart. I remember we were, uh, Jake and I were at Preacher's Fellowship a while back. I'm wanting I'm to look over here and there's nobody here to look at. Um, but we were, and uh, Brother Eric Crawford from down there in Hazlitt was preaching. And, uh, and, and at the end of it, I turned to Jake and I said, he just preached like a pastor. Uh, a lot of times you go know these fellowships and they preach different style sermons. But I uh, said so that was a very pastoral sermon that he preached. He was trying to help. He was trying to encourage. And uh, that's kind of what I've been doing, I feel like, uh, the past few weeks. And, you know, you kind of warn of a path not to walk. You point to a path you should walk. They're not hellfire or brimstone. and But they are very deeply personal. And I do think it takes a pastor's heart to preach them. And, you know, looking back, over than you know five plus years been here almost five and a half now it's crazy um, early on i didn't preach as many of those i preached uh, a lot of a different kinds but i, I kind of had to develop that in myself to be able to preach a pastoral message and but this sermon i want to preach to you today is is what i would call a positional sermon i'm not trying to alliterate that on purpose but. Uh, uh, I just want to talk about an idea, and, and really, I've, I've got like one major point at the end I, I want to highlight. We're going to get there eventually. But uh, I just want to kind of lay down a position, a scripture, a scripturally based position this morning on uh, about the importance of the church. I've studied quite a bit on what it means to, to be a Baptist, to have that name, and I, a Baptist is important. I like it on our side. That's what we are. We as Baptists hold that the scripture is our final authority for faith and practice. We we reject things like tradition or you know, just because so and so said it, well, we'll say, Well, chapter and verse, give me what the Bible says. There's many things we believe that we have in common with other groups out there. You can go to different churches this morning, and, and you know what? They're going to believe a lot of the same stuff we believe and teach. That's fantastic. Uh, a lot of go a lot of different churches in this county this morning, and you'll find a preacher who will stand up and preach salvation by grace through faith that you're a sinner and you need Christ to save you. And I'm so thankful for that. I, any church that's out there preaching the gospel is not my enemy. But we, and we don't you know, we don't believe that you have to be a Baptist to be saved. It's not just exclusive to us. We get to heaven. there from people that weren't Baptist in heaven. I, I know that. I understand that. I'm glad for every church, every preacher, every missionary, every Christian that proclaims the true gospel in this dark and dying world. There's also many great fundamentals of the faith, things like uh, well, you can talk about the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ. i would I would say creation. These great fundamental truths. Uh, Orthodoxy, if you want to use that kind of terminology for it. And a lot of people believe this stuff. And and I'm so very thankful. I'm not alone in believing these great truths. We can go other places, here in the town, here in the state, here across the world, and people are preaching the same type of stuff that we're we're preaching and teaching and, and holding strong to here. But when it comes to being a Baptist, there is one defining area of doctrine that separates us from other groups, and that is what we believe about the church. It's a branch of theology, it's called ecclesiology, it's from the Greek word ecclesia, which is uh, the Greek word for church. And Baptists uh, are so defined by what we believe about the local church. And uh, someone asked, me, well, you know, what is the, define, the defining belief, I think, for that this is what we believe about the local church. I'm not the only person who said that. I'm glad of that. I, I think I was crazy if I was the only person who said that, but I'm not. But I think it's so important that we hold on to what we believe and what we do inside of each local congregation. I want to look at a few scriptures this morning kind of about what a church is, about what it what it does, and I want to build up finally to a thought on it. Our text this morning is the very first mention of the word church in the scriptures, not just in the chronology of scriptures, you know, this is Matthew being this is the earliest appearance in the ministry of Christ, or it's, it's also canonically, Matthew being the first book of the New Testament. Either way you'll slice it, this is the first time the church is mentioned. Christ in His earthly ministry was a divisive figure. The boy, the people of this time, they didn't know what to do with Him. Some folks loved Him, some folks hated Him. Most everyone had an opinion about Him, and you see that highlighted here. Jesus turns to His own followers, says, "Who's everybody out there? Who do they think that I am? What are you hearing? What do, you, what do they say?" I said, "Well, there's some things. Some people say you're John the Baptist." Well, it's ridiculous since, uh, number one, we saw John the Baptist and Christ together when he was baptized. These are two separate people. And also, at this point, John the Baptist is dead. He's already had his head chopped off. He's dead. He's gone. But they thought, well, maybe he's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. So he must preach. He must be like John. There's something about the ministry of Christ that reminds them of the fiery uh, preacher in the wilderness that was John the Baptist some said he was Elijah. By the way, the closing words of the Old Testament there, the last few verses of Malachi, the final prophetic words that were given for before about a 400 year period of silence until the coming of John the Baptist, Malachi wrote, behold I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of our Lord. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This promise that Elijah would come before the last day. And so people thought, oh my goodness, Christ must be Elijah. The end is coming, the end is coming, and he must be the herald of the end times. And by the way, when Christ actually even repeats this uh, in Matthew 17, 10, they they ask him about the end times and he says Elijah truly shall come first. He, he acknowledges this truth in Matthew 17:11. And uh, in doing so, he's also talking about that John the Baptist came in the role. Of, I don't have time to chase all this down, but came in the role of John the Baptist. And you'll read it Matthew 17:11 uh, through 13. But once again, they were mistaken that he was not John the Baptist. He was not Elijah. Some said he was Jeremiah. Well. Oh, Jeremiah, he was the weeping prophet. He was the one that proclaimed his message to the kingdom of Israel, or Judah specifically, that the judgment was coming. Their kingdom was going to fall. And no one listened to him other than it really sounds like he may have had one friend, his his scribe, that uh, had followed along with him. He's called the weeping prophet. Now think about that, that Christ was compared to the fire of Elijah and also to the tears of Jeremiah. It's it's amazing to think about. But he wasn't Jeremiah. Others said he was a prophet. And actually they're kind of right on that one. In a sense he was. Christ is prophet, Christ is priest, and Christ is king. But he was not just a prophet. He was the desire, the expectation, the fulfillment of everything the prophets had said before. He was the suffering Savior of Isaiah 53. He's the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. He was not just a prophet preaching God's Word. He was the Word of God made flesh and dwelling among us. Christ turns this question. He makes it personal. He asks first, he said, well, what does everybody else think about me? Now he says, now gentlemen, what do you think about me? He looks at those 12 men. And Simon Peter, ever the one to open his mouth, and this is one of the times he opens his mouth and what comes out is good. Doesn't happen a lot in the Gospels because he usually opens mouth, insert foot. But right here, it's tremendous what he says. He says, Thou art the Christ. The word Christ there means Messiah, anointed one. He says, You are the promised one, the foretold one, the one that would come to be the king over Israel, the one who would come to be the sacrifice for sins. He says, I know you are the one the Scripture said would come. And then he says, the Son of the living God, that you are deity. You are God, the Word made flesh. It's a very, very, very powerful statement when you unpack it. By the way, I believe that faith in Christ is the rock that the church is built on. Christ says, upon this rock. I think He's talking about that declaration of faith. and it's not talking about Peter there. I know there's a play on words that takes place. Peter means rock and Petros and all this kind of stuff. I don't think Christ is being cute here. I think He's being pretty plain. He said what He meant. By the way, it talks about Peter having the keys to the kingdom there. And by the way, you skip ahead to Acts. He did. In Acts chapter 2, he preached the gospel at Pentecost. 3,000 were saved, Jews. And then a little bit later in Acts chapter 10, at the house of Cornelius, a Roman, a Gentile, he preached the gospel to him, and the folks there were saved. He opened the door to the Jews and to the Gentiles for the gospel. In both cases, Peter preached salvation by grace through faith in Christ, which is what Christ is highlighting here in Matthew sixteen, eighteen, that Christ is the Son of the Living God, that He is come to be the sacrifice for sins, that He is the Lord of all. So that's my point number one about the church is that the church is built on faith in Christ. The church is built on faith in Christ. It's not built to be a five oh one C three organization in our government. It's not built to be Commun- it's built on faith in Christ. That is the foundation of the church. But what is a church? That's not a word that was just made up. The word there that's being used in Greek, ekklesia. It, it's, a, it's a kind of a governmental term. It means a called out assembly. It means to have a group of people and then to pull out some of that group for a purpose. They said they would use it sometimes for like almost like pulling out a jury if you will but it's pulling out people from a larger group for a purpose it's not a vague term at all in its meanings. it means an assembly I've got a book back there and a guy goes great lengths to, to explain that that the, the church is an assembly it's an assembling of believers and that's my second point the church is an assembly of called out believers built on faith in Christ Those who would believe in Him called out from this world to be part of the church. Now, I don't want to bore you with a bunch of stats. I can give you all this stuff. I've I've studied all this out, but you'll find in the Greek New Testament that word Ecclesia used 115 times. By the way, there's some confusion on that, and I can clear all that up. But I'm I'm very certain it's 115. There's a few of those that that use it in the governmental term, a generic term. Uh, There's about six of those. That's 109 times that that word is used to define a church, an assembly of believers. Now here is where we get to where I I want to address something that be a little bit controversial when you talk about the church. It's an area that some Baptists have allowed other traditions to influence our fundamental understanding of what a church is. Point number three is this assertion that churches are local, visible assemblies of believers. It's become fashionable to refer to an invisible church, to a a universal church, saying all believers of this age are the church, that 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 language is not found in Scripture. Um, In fact, to say a universal church or an invisible church it's, it's a, technically, it's an oxymoron. It's like saying a friendly fight. It's like saying an honest politician. Uh, for there to be a, an assembly, it has to be visible, and it has to be called out from a group. It, it, the, the words, it does not work to say that there is a universal or an invisible church. In the Scripture, you find overwhelming evidence that there are many particular, i use that word on purpose, particular churches and not many gatherings of a single church. There's not one church with a bunch of different, no, it's many churches, a plurality. Allow me to demonstrate on this. In Acts chapter number 2, we have the empowering of the Spirit at Pentecost on the gathered believers. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, They were all with one accord in one place. By the way, who were they? Go back to the previous chapter. That's 120 believers, the disciples and other group of believers that had gathered there. Uh, You look at uh, verse 15, chapter 1. By the way, it's an organized assembly of believers that you see right there. Kind of sounds like church to me. And then after Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, when he proclaimed salvation by grace through faith to the Jews who, who, are, who are, 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 whose attention has been gathered by the outpouring of the Spirit there, it says in the final results in Acts, uh, Acts 2.41, Then they that gladly received his word, that's those that were saved, accepted the gospel, were baptized, And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They were added. Why were they added? This is not the church starting. It's 3,000 people that joined to something that existed before. About 120 from before, I think, is the church. Now you have 3,000 people joining to that, something that already existed. The church is growing here. By the way, Point number four, I've got seven of these just to talk about church as we go along, but point number four, both faith, the foundation of the church being faith in Christ, but both faith and baptism are required for church membership. It's not just faith, but it is the public testimony of faith through immersion, through believer's baptism that is required for church membership. That's why we're called Baptists, by the way that the first time this group of believers there in Jerusalem is called a church is in Acts 2.47. In Acts 2, verse 47, the last part of the verse says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. He's adding to the church. And here's where I'm going to contend right here. I think this church singular is the church at Jerusalem. Let Let me... Go on and prove that. The next time we see the church is in Acts five eleven, after the episode with Ananias and Sapphira where they sold the land and came in alive and lied uh, and God struck them dead and there's a fun fun little story there. But after that, in Acts five eleven it says and great fear came upon all the church, singular, and upon as many as heard these things. It's still a singular church at Jerusalem. That's where the believers are gathering. It's at Jerusalem. That's where they're assembled. It's a local event the Nice and Sapphira happening right there in Jerusalem, a local event that shook a local congregation. The church continues to grow, but it stays singular. In Acts chapter 6, you have the deacons that are added to help minister to this singular church in Jerusalem. But it's a very diverse group. They've got some Jews who are, uh, you know, from out of town. They don't necessarily speak the Jewish language. We need some help ministering to those people. That's where the deacons come in. Deacon means servant. That's where they come in. Uh, but the, but they're serving this one church. At Stephen, in chapter number seven, one of the uh, one of one of these first deacons is martyred for his faith. At the close of that, you're, you're introduced to Saul, who will become Paul the apostle. Saul begins as a persecutor of the church. And in Acts 8, verse 1, And Saul was consenting unto his, uh, Stephen's death. And at the time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. The church, at singular church at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. There was one church, in, one assembly in Jerusalem until Saul and his persecution, and then they spread, which, by the way, was what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, to the other most part of the world. Saul's persecution, they spread out. They go to the local region. It's like going, well, they're in Decatur. Well, now we're going to spread out. We're going to go to North Texas. We're going to go to Oklahoma. We're going to you know, spread out throughout the, 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 the surrounding regions. In verse number 3 of Acts 8, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, singular. Once again, it's the church there at Jerusalem that he he is working against. There's two key things there. A singular church at Jerusalem, and also that after Saul's persecutions, the church spreads, it scatters. The people are moving out away from Jerusalem. And from this point on, I contend, we don't see a sing- we don't see use of church singular, but we start seeing the use of churches plural. Not one church in many locations, but a lot of different churches, a lot of different assemblies that are spread out. That's my point number five uh, by the way, oh point number five, and this is a little bit tangential, forgive me, but churches start churches, you reproduce after your kind. That's how churches get started. Churches start churches. That's point number five. Acts 9.31 Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Smith after, after Saul had been converted and he's, he's kind of off the scene. The church as plural, had rest in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria were edified, walking in fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. It's plural there. Now I will acknowledge... Here, that there is a, and I did not know this until about two days ago, that there is a little bit of controversy on that verse, as to whether churches should be plural or it should be church singular. And that is a very new thing where they change that to a singular church. And I, I, I can't accept it. I, I don't think that that's based on good Greek manuscripts. Uh, The majority text, which is the foundation I prefer, I think is better and more reliable. It has churches. Um, And by the way, if that is singular, talking about one church and across the area, this would be the only use of that word. It's out of sync with the rest of it. So I think it is churches, plural. I'm just throwing that out there. Acts 11.22, there's a singular church at Jerusalem. Acts 11.26, a singular church at Antioch. In Acts 12, 1 and 5, a singular church at Jerusalem. In Acts 13, 1, a singular church at Antioch. In Acts 14, 23, it says, And when they had ordained them elders in every church, in every assembly, there's local leadership established in these churches because they're separate assemblies. So you see that there. It's local leadership and local churches, plural in both counts. In Acts 14.27, a singular church in Antioch. In Acts 15, you have a great story. There's a controversy that arises whether or not the Gentiles have to basically observe the Jewish customs. And uh, there's teachers that come up from Judea and from Jerusalem that go up to Antioch. And they're telling these Gentile believers, you have to live like a Jew. And Paul and some of those guys are saying, no, we don't. You know, you know, we're, if they're not a Jew, they don't have to become a Jew to be saved. And they end up, the church at Antioch in verse 3 sends Paul and Barnabas to the church at Jerusalem. Two separate entities. By the way, why do they go down there? They're not going down there because the church at Jerusalem ruled over them. They're going down there because that's where the trouble came from. Verse 24 in the response, it says that that trouble came from us. The word there is us. They're acknowledging that some of those people came out of their church when they were saying the uh, teaching this bad thing. In Acts 15.4, the singular church at Jerusalem acts in their own authority to accept Paul and Barnabas in, receive them in. In Acts 15.22, the singular church at Jerusalem approves sending messengers back with Paul and Barnabas, they decided it's a, it's a church. You talk about it. It's a kind of a church democracy at work. They all agreed to this. It wasn't just the apostles stamping it. The church itself does it. You learn a lot if you study out what happens there. Um, but they sent back. And by the way, this is point number six. Local churches are governed autonomously. That every local church, every local assembly governs itself. I, I don't tell... The First Baptist what to do? They don't tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, uh, there, we're we are free to worship God according to our conscience, according to the leading of the Spirit, and uh, wherever church that is. the First Baptist. I mean, William over at Grace Baptist, uh, or even the community over here, or any of these other ones. I, we're we're free to do whatever we want to do uh, in serving God. In Acts, and by the way, at the end of that, in Acts 15:41. It talks about multiple churches throughout the regions of Syria and Cilicia, this is because it says Paul says he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches (plural). Okay, so there's a bunch, not one church, in all this, but many churches. Okay, I bored you to death. <laughs> That's technical. I uh, know. We've got about 90 more verses. We can keep going. We got, we got we got all day. You know. No football game today. So at least no NFL games. There's that pretend football that's going on. But every time I contend that Christian church is referred to going forward from this point, it's speaking of a local autonomous assembly of baptized believers. I will also acknowledge there may be one exception to that in Ephesians. Uh, It kind of talks maybe about a church in glory, which is all the believers assembled into glory, but that's not a church that exists now. It's a group that exists in the future when we're all up in heaven. B. H. Carroll calls that the prospective church. I'm still studying that one out, wrapping my head around that one. But real quick, the six points I've observed through this about churches. First off, the church is built on faith in Christ. Second, The church is an assembly of called-out believers. Third, churches are local, visible assemblies of believers. Four, both faith and baptism are required for church membership. Five, churches start churches. Six, local churches are governed autonomously. And now I add number seven. We're finally getting to the point of the sermon, okay? Number seven, God's plan for this age is to work, through churches. God's plan for this age is to work through churches. When Christ said, Go ye therefore, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, was He speaking just to the disciples there? I don't think He was. I think He was speaking to the believers. I think that commission is as good for us as it was for for John and Peter and, and, and for Paul a little bit later on. I think that commission is good for us today. Christ gave that order. He gave us that direction. He gave us the power through the Spirit. And He also gives us the organization to do the work, and that is the local church. Now, one page for the Sunday. I had this thought, thinking about the church. And when I say the church, I'm talking about the idea of local churches. Mankind is always looking to do things better. I'm kind of like that myself. I look at things. How can we do this better? How can I? How can I? How can I play this song better? How can I paint this a little bit better? How can I write that a little bit better? Uh, you know, how can I preach? We, we, we tend to do that. We want to do things better. And sometimes we'll look at things and we'll say, well, the government isn't working. If we could just do it this way, or this school isn't working. If we could just do it this way, we're always looking to do something better. And for 2,000 years, man has tried to do Christianity better than the plan God gave us. Some have usurped the autonomy of local churches. It's where you get your bishops, your popes, uh, over, uh, you know, groups of of churches and having a, a hierarchy over uh, local congregations. Uh, that That's not something you see in Scripture, and I can prove that. It's local autonomous groups. But somebody said, you know what, it'd be a whole lot better. I could keep everybody in line if I was in charge of a bunch of different churches. That's not God's plan. By the way, you say, well, that's, we're, kind of the Baptists were the, Baptist the independents, the sort of Protestant, not really, but sort of Protestant. Um, I didn't mean to chase that rabbit. Well, let me chase that for a second here. In study out the history of the Baptist Protestants are uh, came, or the groups that came out of the Catholic Church in the Reformation. They said, we don't like what the Catholic Church, Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, you know, all those guys, they came out of the Catholic Church the Baptists were never part of the Catholic Church. The Baptist line did not split off of Rome. The Baptist line, I contend, and I can prove historically, comes from a line that, that was always separate from Rome. Rome is not the mother church. It was not in my notes at all. But I'm gonna tell you something I see nowadays, I'll be honest. Even some Baptist churches, I don't call out anybody on this, but uh, I'm going to tell you one of the big things right now in church growth is satellite churches. It's where you have like in one big church and then they start a church over here, but they don't let it be independent. They continue to rule and to govern. It, it just becomes another campus, another branch. Um, it's a very dangerous precedent because that's not scriptural it is to establish independent local congregations is the goal of, of planting churches uh, but that's that's coming back in play it's history repeating itself but that's somebody looking and saying you know what I could do a better job if I, if I held on to that church I could I could run it a little bit better instead of letting it uh, get on it's own feet and letting it go it's own way some have opened the door of church membership I told you church membership is based on faith in Christ believers baptism. Some have opened the door of church membership to the unregenerate, to the unrepentant. They thought that, well, if we bring them into the church, it will help them. We'll help get them right by getting them to listen. Hey, sinners are welcome in the church. Unsaved are welcome to come into this building to hear the gospel, to hear the word. Are they allowed to be members of the church? No. In the sense that it's, you got to have faith. Believer's Baptism, those kind of things. So there is a limiting factor that takes place there. You, but what's happening, by the way, it's the proverbial deal. What happens when you put a bad apple in the barrel of apples? The rest of the apples go bad? That's what is, It doesn't make the one apple better. But that's happened in history. Go look up the halfway covenant here in colonial America. That's what happened. Some tried to marry church and state. They tried to Force their beliefs. Well, King uh, King Bob up there, he is uh, he's Protestant, so now we're Protestant. Oh, King Bob just lost the war. Now King Carl is uh, in charge, and he's a Catholic. I guess we're all Catholic now. That's the story of the Middle Ages and European history. Uh, it's an unholy alliance, by the way. Baptists believe in separation church and state. We believe we ought to have religious freedom to worship as we please, and so should everybody else. We shouldn't force that on anybody. That's the Baptist tradition. Some have introduced new ideas to replace the church. Go look at American history in the 1800s. It's almost comical some of the things happened. There for a while it was popular to start utopian societies. Let's go over and we'll start a city and it will be perfect and we'll, we'll just serve God by ourselves and all those things fell apart. Uh, you have different things, societies, things. let uh, call out one, the Salvation Army kind of started that way. Now it's a charitable organization, but it started out as a group to go out and win the loss. But it wasn't really built as a church. It it was something different and they never claimed to be. It's a very strange thing. But if somebody came along and said, I've got a better idea than what God's plan was. Some have tried to, to make the work bigger than the local church. They say, well, a local church isn't big enough to reach a populace, to reach a nation, to reach a city. You get ideas, oh, we'll have these big meetings and uh, we'll have these mass revival meetings. We'll have, uh, I'm not picking on anybody on this necessarily, but like Billy Graham would come in, like the promise keepers. Things, but those were things designed outside of God's plan for the age, outside the church. And we wonder why, well, these things really didn't work all that well. They didn't stay. They didn't bear lasting fruit. And part of that is because they're outside of God's plan. God knew what he was doing when he gave us the church. Could it be that we're losing so much ground today because we've gotten away from the plan that God gave us? It's high time that we love and exalt the local church as it should be. It's a gift from God for us. God gave it to us because He needs. He knows that we need a local church family to help support us. He knows we need brothers and sisters in Christ. He knows we need that network. He knows we need pastors. He knows we need to get together and sing and preach and pray. God knows that we need that local church. Ephesians 5, 25. It's talking about husbands and wives, but if you catch the other part of that verse, it says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So, well, that's talking about the people. Is it? He didn't say just for the lost or believers. He's talking about an organization. That Christ loved the idea of the church and gave himself for it. If we so love Christ, why do we not love that which he so loved? Why do we continue to try to find better ways? Why do we continue to try to change what the plan was that God gave us for the age? As musicians come I, it's a very simple message we need to we need to love the local church our local church family we need to work that there's more churches we need to establish make sure to establish in our own backyard across the country across the world that's the goal let's get little outposts these new little families that are started everywhere. Let them reach their communities. Every believer should be a member of a local church. Every person, every, every member should be active. Every member should support and strengthen it. Every member should work to add to the church and to seek to the establishment of new churches. The Great Commission is threefold. Preach the gospel to every creature. And then it is to baptize. What is that? That's getting organized into a church. And then third is to teach and to train. It's the disciple. It's a threefold command. That's the command that God gave us. And we still look at it and say, I think I can find it. I think I can't. That's what God said. Here's the plan. Here's the plan for us. We need the church. We need our church. We need more churches. But we need these. We need to get back to the plan that God has given to us. Let me close by going all the way back full circle. But what's important with the church is it's based on faith in Christ. This is not a human endeavor. Walmart, that's a human endeavor. <laughs> Boy Scouts, that's a human endeavor. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those. I'm just saying those are human endeavors. The church is supernatural. And it begins with faith in Christ. We To make sure, number one, that we have that faith in Him. That we trust Him for salvation. Knowing that we're sinners, knowing that we're lost and going to hell. If it was not for the sacrifice of Christ, if it was not for our faith in Him, that's what we need. That's where we get started. Everything else we'll get to after that, but it all starts with that thing. That's the foundation. I hope that you're at that foundation this morning. I trust that you are. We've got church folks in here this morning, but that's what starts. And then we can build off that. Then there's baptism. That's getting into the church. And then there's the teaching, the training that goes on with that. And if we would just get back to that plan, I wonder what great things God would have in store for us. If we would just get back to trusting His plan to reach the world through local churches. What number there, are? We'll stand for time of invitation. 320, 320 in the, in the Baptist Let's pray. Heavenly Father, different kind of message here this morning. Lord something very dear to my heart as we we talk about this great institution of of the church we talk about what the scripture says about it about its, its its grand history about the great things that you have done and lord I'm so amazed at how little we think about church today how little so many believers regard it of their own church families and even just the the family, the, the even the organization of it that we're, we're constantly trying to find things better. The Lord has stepped back and looked at your word, and we look at the how the Roman world was turned upside down by the early church. It was because of the local churches that were established that reached their communities, that strengthened the believers, and in times of fire and persecution that kept strong and were such great bright and shining witnesses Lord I I wish we would get back to that same love for our local church families I'm so thankful we're not alone I'm so thankful there's many churches I'm not going to complain that there's a bunch of good churches in in our area or other areas I'm so thankful for all these that preach the gospel all these folks that are trying to, to serve you Lord, I just pray that we'd all be thankful and active and support and help to multiply the churches as is. this is your plan to reach the ages. Lord, I just pray that we'd be faithful to it. I know it will work. It has worked. You've promised it will work. just pray that we'd be faithful to it. Just, just Lord, in this time, just pray that you would, would, would speak to our hearts, challenge us, I pray, in our love and our feelings and in our faithfulness to the local church family. Speak to us now, I pray in this invitation in thy holy name. Amen.